Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In a culture that places family first, the Lord's ambivalence toward his mother and his brothers in the Gospel of Matthew is confusing, if not utterly scandalous. Why would Jesus ignore his close relatives and leave them standing outside? The answer presented in the text is straightforward. The disciples are the Lord's true relatives because it is the Father's teaching, not human blood ties, that serves as the organizing principle for the tribe of Jesus. This new definition of family reflects the teaching of adoption found in St. Paul's letters. Those who submit to the teaching of the Father are adopted into the Lord's family. Peace and mercy be upon all who walk by this rule, upon the Israel of God. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 299 of the Bible as Literature podcast. It's not a momentous episode number, Richard, but it's on the verge of momentous. <laughs> yeah, we're getting pretty close. 300. 300 episodes. That's a long time. That's a lot of work. You and I have had to face each other every week. For how many years? However many it takes to do 300 episodes. It's been several years. It's going on six years. So congratulations for surviving this journey. And it's not without fanfare because our colleague, Father Aaron, and his parishioner, Jason, have recently released a new podcast on the Ephesus School Network. We shared their first episode with our listeners, but I want to encourage you once again to subscribe to Teach Me Thy Statutes. Just go to ephesusschool.org and you'll see the latest episode of Teach Me Thy Statutes is always available on our landing page. Keep an eye on that space because we plan to add more podcasts in the coming months. I'm excited to see more podcasts and to hear more voices looking at the scripture and really delving in deeply to the text. Our goal is to fill every day of the week with scripture so that people who appreciate and value this work will also appreciate the work of others. Obviously, our teacher, Father Paul, has greatly enriched and broadened the Bible as Literature podcast. I think his presence on Tuesday mornings has enhanced our work on Thursdays. And now we're expanding outward with the intent of creating a portfolio of quality programming that is committed to education and believes in the intelligence of our listener audience. That's really important to us. So we'll keep going and we want to encourage all of you to support Father Aaron and Jason and their work and help spread the word and subscribe. So today we're going to continue with our discussion of the Gospel of Matthew. We are now 
on verse 46 in chapter 12. We've come to the end of chapter 12, Richard, and it's an important section because it zeroes in on a central teaching of the New Testament, and that is this idea that what creates community is not bloodline or affiliation or belief, philosophical or theological. What creates family, what creates tribe, what creates community is the teaching of the Father. This idea of the teaching of the Father and bringing people together is pushing this idea we've seen all throughout chapter 12, which is being able to understand the teaching of Jesus as the most important, not the wonderful signs, not figuring out why he's doing the wonderful signs, but actually listening to the word. I mean, this whole long discussion we've had all throughout chapter 12, the dispute between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees about doing the will of God, about doing the teaching, about hearing and translating the hearing into action, about receiving the Spirit through the Word, having that implanted in the mind, that is the heart, and then performing it, acting it, allowing that Spirit to animate us as the proof that the Word has been implanted as a seed in our mind, in our hearts, and as bearing fruit. And so the fruit is the ability to speak this word. The fruit is the actions that come from this word being planted in us. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. Here, as always, when we hear mother and brothers, we have to think about how these metaphors operate technically in the biblical genre. Your brothers are very simply the people from your community, the people from your tribe. And remember, this is the Gospel of Matthew, which is from the very beginning, from chapter one, disrupting bloodlines, messing with the kingly patrilineal line in order to establish God's line. Remember, that's the key, that God the Father is establishing his line through adoption. And it's no small thing that Jesus is, in effect, an adopted son of the Father in the Gospel of Matthew. Because if the Father, like a Roman patrician in the minds of the addressees of this story in late antiquity, can put anyone on his knee through instruction— then suddenly it becomes possible for people from warring camps to be made into brothers. So anyone who is steeped in the biblical school, hearing verse 46, should already intuit tension in the story, because what is the basis for saying that they are the brothers of Jesus? And of course, the reference to his mother is a reference again to community. Now, sometimes in the New Testament, depending on which gospel you're reading, Mary can function as the community comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. But here in Matthew, the metaphor of his mother is slightly demoted. We're not interested right now in the significance of Mary here in 46. 
were interested in undermining his familial connections. Yeah, and these familial connections have to be understood in the correct context. I've noticed that a lot of people, when they read this, they read it through a white American lens and they lose some of the richness of the text. For example, we have an exchange student who speaks Serbian as his native language. His parents have two sons. And he was saying, oh, after school, my grandma would always cook dinner for me and my sisters. Your sisters? We thought you only had a brother. And he thought for a second, he said, oh, I mean my cousins. Because in Serbian, a brother or sister can also include your cousins. In Russian, if you want to say cousin, the way you say it is your second brother or your second sister. So the scope of brother or sister is not nearly as narrow as in American English. But even in English, the word for mother in many communities, say African-American community, you may have a woman who takes care of the kids on her block and the kids call her mama or call her mom or call her mother. It's not confusing to people. It's a functional role. So when we hear brother or mother, it does not necessarily have to be a bloodline. But what is very important is what you said, Father, which is that it's tied to a community. And the person who functions as mother is not an outsider, even if it is someone just on the block who's taking care of all the kids. It's someone on our block, from our neighborhood, on our street. She's our mother. Even if you're talking about cousins rather than talking about brothers, there's some people from our family. I'm related to them. So on the one hand, I want people to read this in a way that they can understand the richness of what these terms mean. But at the same time, I want to underscore what you're saying, Father, which is that this is completely connected with the community and the insiders versus the outsiders. And this comes after the dispute between Jesus and the Pharisees, where Jesus says, your sons, who do they cast demons out by? Is it Beelzebul or is it God? The Pharisees are judging Jesus simply on his insideness or outsidehood. And that's the only criterion they're using. So even if it's the same action as someone from the inside, they can call it evil because it's not one of our people. In this section, we have Jesus being confronted by his people, his insiders. And so now we see what Jesus says, not about someone who judges him to be an outsider, but what Jesus says to people who believe Jesus to be an insider, who think that they're on the same side as Jesus. Someone said to him, behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. Now, verse 47 in chapter 12 is not found in early manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew, but that's okay, Rich, because it continues the theme of verse 46 as a kind of filler transition to 48. So the one question to ask when reading this section would be, if we were to take verse 47 out, does it change the meaning of the passage? Sometimes when you're missing a verse, there's two ways to explain it. One is you could say a later copyist thought that there was something missing and something needed to be filled. Or it could be that when a copyist was copying a manuscript, they accidentally dropped it out and they skipped. In either case, what 47 does is it emphasizes this point. 
They're standing outside. They want to talk to him. Then people say, Jesus, there's people outside wanting to talk to you. And this happens when you get these over-eager students who say to the teacher, but they want to talk to you. They want, and the teacher knew all along that they wanted to talk. They just are doing something else, or they purposely are not talking to him or whatever. Somebody has to keep confronting Jesus with this fact until Jesus is forced to respond in some way. It's a little bit annoying. He knows they're outside. Now someone is reminding him they're outside, and now Jesus is put into a position where he actually has to say something. And it's this word tis in Greek, ipenthetis afto, someone said to him. And that someone, the word tis in Greek, is being thrown under the bus here. So in some ways, it's a significant addition. Are we continuing the critique of who in the Gospel of Matthew, of the disciples, of the Pharisees? Is it ambiguous? The fact that it's not specific raises questions for me in any case. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? So the difference, just to recap, is that instead of just the addressee hearing that Jesus was aware, someone made Jesus aware, and then he reacted and said, look, you tell me who my family really is. And of course, now he's speaking as the teacher, and the question is not a sincere question, it's a test. Because by now in the Gospel of Matthew, everyone engaged in the story, whether they are characters in the story or addressees of the story, everyone is accountable to understand the way in which Matthew is disrupting bloodlines, disrupting tribe, disrupting imperial loyalty in the Roman society. Everything is being transferred to the father of Jesus, who establishes his line through his instruction. His seed, his line, literally comes out of the word that he speaks and that Jesus now confronts his students with. This idea of keeping the family together and disrupting the lines is a major part of this entire chapter. I mean, I want to refresh everybody's memory. Just in verse 25, Jesus said, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. Jesus can't just say, well, okay, we're related by blood, therefore we're the same house, because that's not the foundation of his house. The foundation of his house is not his. His house is the house of his father. Anyone who is not aligned with his father cannot be part of the house because the house will not be able to stand. Jesus has to make very clear that the house comes back to a single referent, and that is the pater familias. The father of this house is his father, and that is God. If God is not the basis of the loyalty, then there is no house. And if there is no house, it cannot stand. When you're saying mother, when you're saying brother, what do you mean? Because if they're not brothers under my same father, if they're not my mother in relationship to my father, what house are we talking about? The house is not one of, as you said, father, blood or genetics. It is one of loyalty. And it's interesting he said mother when in fact the chapter deals with the ones whom the Pharisees would consider their fathers, Jonah and Solomon. In contrast, just like in the case of 
the genealogy, Matthew, or rather the Matthean Jesus, is bringing in the Queen of the South, a woman who is an outsider, disrupting the whole system, or bringing in the men of Nineveh who are clearly unrighteous and so forth. These are the ones whom Matthew is making your family in the mind of the listener through God's instruction. So the lines are being redrawn. And the more I think about it, the more powerful the use of mother is in this example, because why wouldn't he say father and brothers? It's an interesting question. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. To me, the use of mother connects us directly to the disrupting mechanism of the genealogy, which seeks to undermine patrilineal lineage in Matthew. Right. The father is the one who establishes the household. He is establishing who his house is. And all the metaphors we had about the house earlier on in this chapter come to a head here at the end of the chapter, where he's talking about the Pharisees and their sons. Who do your sons cast out demons by? And now he's talking about his mother and his brothers. He's looking at the mother because the patrilineal descent comes from the single father. If you're wondering whether someone is a mother or a brother to you, you look to see who the father is. That's the reference point. The other critical point, and it's important to stress, this has nothing to do with gender. We're not talking about gender. A woman can function with all of the same authority that a man can function in the position of the patriarch in a family. It's a function. We're not talking about gender on the Bible as Literature podcast. We're not interested in the cultural wars at all. This isn't about men versus women. But I think the point here in terms of the metaphor of the Roman household that you were emphasizing, Rich, there is no father in this equation. You have Jesus, who is the oldest brother. You have his mother and his brothers, which means there is one father. As we like to say in our tradition, there is only one father in church. Everyone else, as the community, become subservient to God, ultimately, who is our father. And that's touchy in 2019 because people start to extrapolate a social contract from these metaphors, and that's not the intent. The intent is for us to enter into the reality of the classical world that is the context of this literature so we can understand what the literature is saying. And it has nothing to do with gender. It has to do with the primacy of a written teaching. That's what we're really dealing with here. And if you do want to talk about the current social context, you have to look at the turmoil in our society and our trajectory towards civil strife and how all of it could be mitigated if we still had some shame and still had a memory of how to collectively bow our heads to the Lord. But we can't appeal to the Lord for help. It feels very much like the book of the Twelve, Richard, where the people turn to the Lord and he can't help them. It's a prophetic mechanism because in practice, we have turned our backs on biblical wisdom to such a degree that we can't appeal to it in the hearts of the middle of the country 
It's a serious problem. So there is a connection, Rich, to the social contract, but it has nothing to do with the culture wars over gender and sexuality. I get so tired of all that noise. It's a distraction. The culture wars absolutely are a distraction. That's why we spend so little time talking about it on the Bible's Literature podcast. One of the problems is that we moved away from the functional fatherhood of neighborhoods and communities to a scientific genetic fatherhood of someone I've never met before who somehow is related to my family by genes, by a sexual act. That's the way that I'm related to them is because so-and-so had sex with so-and-so and then I came about, as opposed to someone who functionally raises us and holds us together as a house. And I think that's one of the things that's most important. The thing that makes a father in the Bible is not their ability to engender a child. What makes a father is that they're able to hold together a household and run a household. And that becomes so difficult today because people leave home without any thought, not understanding the function that their father brings. And then once they become fathers, they don't understand that simply engendering a child is not what makes them a father. It's bringing a household together. Fathers have a duty to teach their children that they owe loyalty to their brothers and sisters and their mother because of him. His job is not to bash everybody over the head. His job is to make sure that everyone is living harmoniously together, that there isn't a multiplicity of wills within the household, because a multiplicity of wills in the household is going to bring the house down. That's what Jesus was trying to say in previous verses. The father has a duty to impose a single will, not in order to crush everyone. It's so that everyone can live at peace with one another, as opposed to argument and strife. The CEO is the father of the company. And when I say father, I'm talking about it not as a gendered person. I'm talking about the father as a function. Whether it's a man or a woman at the head of a company, the CEO directs the company in the way it should go and makes sure that there's a single will within the company that everybody knows what the mission and function of the company is. Because if there is strife within the company, then that CEO has a duty to put that person outside of the company so that they don't disrupt the rest of the household. I mean, this is how a father functions, is they impose a will so that people can have peace and harmony, not so he can expand his ego. I'm talking about a father who cares for his family or her family, whoever's performing that role, but somebody in the family is imposing a will so everyone can live in freedom, everyone can live at peace, and everyone can serve one another so that the house can stand, as Jesus says. Here in Matthew specifically, the function of the Father is being co-opted to establish priority. So whereas in a human household, it's about establishing order, like what's for dinner, more importantly in Matthew, it's about making sure that people behave correctly relative to the gospel. And in this sense, as the elder brother and the teacher, Jesus is the implement of the will of the Father. He is the tool that the Father wields to make sure that people hear this instruction and know what the correct behavior is. And that's why it's important that he calls his students, his disciples, his mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. So he adds the word sister in verse 50, which signals a kind of completeness that we are including essentially everyone in the whole world 
as family if they submit to the instruction. And in my ears, Richard, it harkens back to the end of Galatians. When those who walk according to the rule of God's instruction are the Israel of God. So it's a broader tent. It's a broader vision for the mission of the Bible and who can be numbered as one of God's people. Ultimately, the trajectory of the Bible from the very beginning, this is not a New Testament concept, the trajectory of the Bible was to include all of the nations. That is the high aspiration of this teaching. And all that's expected for participation in this community of brother and sister and mother under the fatherhood of the God of Abraham all that's expected is that you accept this rule to love your neighbor and to obey your father. And suddenly you become part of this fellowship. So I want to be clear. You have two, brother and mother, but you add sister in between. Suddenly you have three, which is a kind of completeness in biblical numerology. So now it's totally inclusive and the invitation is totally open in verse 50. And the invitation Parkins back to the coming kingdom and Jesus announcing the kingdom of his father. Remember, we were talking many episodes ago about how Jesus is going as quickly as he can from person to person, everyone he can, asking them and announcing to them this kingdom that's coming and that they are free to be a member of this kingdom. But it requires obedience to the king of this kingdom. Here we take the language of family, and you have the father who's the head of this household. Membership is defined exclusively by obedience, because as I mentioned, it's about the house standing. It's about a single will in the family. It's not one person creating a faction here and another person causing a faction there. Everyone follows a single will. That is the only requirement for being a member. Will you follow the will of the Father? And it's beautiful when there is only one head, and that head is God the Father, all of us are put in this position of meekness. All of us are subdued. All of us are under pressure. All of us are in our place. And when that happens, community is possible. That's antithetical to Fox News and CNN asking everyone in the world to expound on their view of why everybody else in the world is an idiot and why they know what the right thing is and how they get it because their life and blah, blah, blah. All of that, frankly, is destructive and demonic. It is a kind of demon possession because it's a false spirit of self-involvement. Thanks very much, Dr. Martin. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.